college campuses especially um, and what that says about like why it is even more important to continue to advocate for justice in Palestine, especially as genocide in Gaza continues. Um, so honestly, I think that while the truck was an incredibly violent, dangerous thing that occurred on Harvard's campus, um, I think a lot of people realized how important it was to continue to show up for Palestine and use their voices. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. On a grisly day in late October, an odd-looking truck pulled over on a dirt road in Heinsburg. The truck had electronic billboards attached to three sides that displayed the smiling face of a young woman. The neighbors knew the face well. It was Eva Frazier, whose family lived in a nearby house. Eva was a top student at nearby Champlain Valley Union High School, from which she graduated in 2022. Eva has long been passionate about social justice issues and was involved in CVU's chapter of Amnesty International. She's also a competitive swimmer. Eva is now in her sophomore year at Harvard. The truck with the illuminated billboards had a different description of Eva. It showed her face under the banner, Harvard's Leading Anti-Semite. The truck had traveled from Boston, where it had spent several weeks circling Harvard Yard, displaying the faces of numerous Harvard students beneath the same banner. It was an effort launched by a right-wing group called Accuracy in Media to dox students who were allegedly sympathetic to Palestinians or who had in any way expressed opposition to Israel's war on Hamas and Gaza. Doxing refers to publicizing someone's personal information without their permission. This doxing effort is part of a national campaign to suppress pro-Palestinian speech that is led by Canary Mission, a shadowy group linked to Israel. This campaign to dox students and faculty has received national media attention, but its work in Vermont has not been reported on until now. The pressure campaign against universities may have claimed its biggest prize with the resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay, who stepped down on January 2nd after a month-long backlash after she testified in Congress about anti-Semitism on campus and allegations advanced by right-wing activists that some of her scholarly work had been plagiarized, which Harvard's governing body refuted. Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik celebrated Gay's resignation, vowing, This is just the beginning. Eva Frazier refuses to be silenced. On this Vermont Conversation, we talk with Eva about her experience getting doxxed and speaking out for Palestinian rights. We also talk with James Bamford, an award-winning investigative journalist who recently wrote an expose for The Nation about Canary Mission. I spoke with Eva while she was home on holiday break from Harvard. We spoke at her family's house in Hinesburg, where I also met her mother, Kitty. I began by asking Kitty Frazier to describe what happened when the doxing truck arrived at her home. It was um, in the end of October on a very gray, drizzly day, kind of like today. And we knew that the truck might be coming because uh, my daughter had been notified that it might be coming. So I was definitely kind of on high alert thinking that it might show up. And I had also spoken with our chief of police in the town to let him know that it might show up. And I went to work that day, definitely feeling very anxious that it might happen. And I got several texts from my daughter throughout the morning asking, is it there yet? Is it there yet? Which was unfortunate because I knew she was taking a really important exam. And I was like, just, it's not here yet. Take it easy. You know, focus on your school and we'll see what happens. And sure enough, about midday, I heard from the chief of police, he contacted me to say that he had had reports of it being in our neighborhood. Um, so at that point, I, I sent a text to all our neighbors because my first concern was really for them. Nobody was home at our house. So I contacted all our neighbors and said, you know, hey, just if you see this truck, don't engage with the driver. Just go about your business. If they're on public roads, then just let them be. And uh, immediately, all, almost all of our neighbors responded back saying, you know, we're in support of everything that's going on and not to worry. And they were just... Really good. 
Were you surprised by your neighbor's response? Not really. I mean, we have a, a really good group of people here, um, more diverse than you might think for Vermont in our neighborhood. And when I say neighborhood, it's loosely comprised of these dead and dirt roads that kind of end up here in the woods. So, um, and there were some people home who saw the truck and took photos of it. And um, yeah, everybody was very supportive. What did the truck say? It had a large scale photo of my daughter on three sides, and then it said Harvard's leading anti Semite, Eva Fraser. You are getting emotional as you talk about your neighbor's response. Why does that move you? I was just really worried. I was worried for her, and I was worried for my family. And worried for my friends. What were you afraid of? I think it's really multifaceted, the different types of things that could have come about. Um, I was worried about violence. I was worried about her future. Um, just a variety of things. And I feel very fortunate that um, our neighbors were very supportive. And it was a really, it was a really fleeting thing, actually. It ended up being very short-lived. One of the things this doxing campaign is trying to do, clearly, is to intimidate people. But it also takes your Eva's story away from her, and they try and tell it. So... What would you like people to know about Eva? Uh, I think the most important thing to know is that she is very kind and would help anybody. Eva Frazier sat quietly as her mom spoke and gave her a hug when she finished. I then asked Eva to recount the events that led up to the doxing truck coming to her home in Hinesburg. There were um, the attacks on October 7th and in Israel, um, and there was a statement put out by the Palestine Solidarity Committee um, that was, you know, um, signed by 30-something other student groups um, and was written as a coalition of pro-Palestine student groups at Harvard um, that garnered international media attention. Um, and really received a lot of backlash um, with calls from several very powerful CEOs um, to blacklist the employment of students um, and the um, large online doxing and harassment of students that were um, allegedly affiliated with the writing of the statement. Um, and there was a group called Accuracy in Media, which is a like watchdog, far-right conservative group that has done things in the past to crack down on things like DEI education, um, transgender diversity, students. Diversity, um, equity, inclusion, yes. Yeah, and um, two days after the first, actually it was, it was, um, it was a Wednesday, the Wednesday after, um, the statement was released. Um, a truck showed up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, in Harvard Square, with the faces and names of students who were allegedly affiliated with the statement. And my face was not featured on the truck the first day, um, but it was added about a week later. Um, the first day the truck was there, the only students who were featured were those who were allegedly affiliated with Black Resistance Student Organization, the Undocumented Student Organization, and um, the Muslim Law Students Association, as well as um, the Muslim Undergraduate Student Association, um, and I believe the, one of the South Asian groups. So it was a very clear racial targeting um, the very first day the truck was there, which I think is important to name. Um, but my name was added to accuracy in media's um, list of those supposedly affiliated with 
um, these student groups that signed the statement, um, I think within two days. Um, Thirikshe originally misspelled my name, um, but it was corrected by the next week. And um, then my face was added to the truck on Harvard's campus. On October 25th, um, the CEO of Accuracy and Media, um, Adam Guillet, had tweeted um, something along the lines of that this truck was now going to be visiting our parents' homes. Um, and I remember I was walking with a friend um, back from one of the dining halls from breakfast, and we got a text about the tweet and both just looked at each other and just, I think, were just so astounded. Um, and then about two minutes later, another student who was on the truck um, had texted that it was at um, that student's house. Um, in the Boston area. Yes, yeah. And the next day, October 26th, the truck came to my house, which was not surprising to me because I was the next geographically closest student. Which is not very close. No, it's about three and a half hours um, from from Boston. So a lot of commitment needed <laughs> to drive this truck here. So, Well, let me ask you, you know, you're on campus and this truck is circling your mm -hmm. campus with your face on it. Mm -hmm. And the banner, what does the banner over your face say? So the truck on campus said Harvard leading, Harvard's leading anti-Semites. The truck that came to my home was just Harvard's leading anti-Semite, I believe. Singular. Yes, singular. Um, what did that make you feel when you were in Cambridge? I think the truck was one of the most like violent manifestations of this long history of censorship, suppression, and doxing of pro-Palestine students or those affiliated um, with um, Palestinian activism. Um, but I think the truck, there's, there's been efforts on Harvard's campus and all across the country for years um, to silence students. I think the truck was the most physical and in-your-face representation of that. I think the first week the truck was there, um, a lot of students, myself included, felt incredibly unsafe. A lot of students who were not even affiliated with the truck, um, who weren't on the truck, um, but happened to be Muslim, Arab, um, black, brown, felt um, were being targeted. Um, and I think there was just a general sense of violence on Harvard's um, campus and in Harvard Square. Uh, the truck would drive and park by like popular restaurants or outside of um, the dormitories that are kind of like further to the, um, you know, edges of campus. Um, it would go to like Harvard Law School, the Divinity School, um, and really make its way all across Cambridge um, in the Harvard area. And I think it just led to a general sense of students who were affected or perceived to be affected feeling really unsafe. Do you think it had the intended effect on students? I mean, and what do you think it is trying to do to the students? I think this is something I've thought about a lot. Um, for a while, I thought it was trying to silence individual students, like the individual students on the truck. Um, but I actually do think its larger goal is to silence all students, and especially people who are thinking about um, being vocal or visible about support for Palestine. I think it did not entirely have its desired effect because I think for a lot of people on Harvard's campus and nationally, it was a big wake-up call around the level in which um, some of these people who are working to um, silence students will go. I mean, taking a truck three and a half hours away from Boston, I think, speaks about the like larger issue that's much larger than me, my friends, um, or any individual around the suppression of pro-Palestine voices um, on college campuses, especially, um, and what that says about like why it is even more important to continue to advocate for justice in Palestine, especially as genocide in Gaza continues. Um, so honestly, I think that while the truck was an incredibly violent, dangerous thing that occurred on Harvard's campus, um, I think a lot of people realized how important it was to continue to show up for Palestine and use their voices. Is the truck still circulating in Cambridge? 
No. However, the truck did go to Yale for the Harvard-Yale game. The football game. <laughs> yeah, in the end of November. And that was the last time it was seen. And funny enough, it happened to have both Harvard students and Yale students on it. Um, two of my friends stayed back, and it was actually an older set of faces on the truck, so I wasn't on it. But one of my friends was joking that, you know, the truck went to Yale and she didn't, um, which <laughs> I think just speaks to the level of commitment that organizations like Accuracy Media are willing to take. Um, and the truck has also gone to Columbia, right? And yes. Um, and I believe George Washington um, and SUNY um, in the city. Um, so they have at least several. Um, the truck was also at Berkeley um, previously before a few months ago. The truck with your face and name on it is not the only way in which you've been attacked. So talk about some of the other things that have happened to you following the October 7th attacks and your activism on the issue. Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing that has happened and predates all of this is a website called Canary Mission. Um, and I didn't know what Canary Mission was until I came to Harvard. Um, and I learned about it my freshman fall. And it's a website that's been around, I think, for about 10 years, um, blacklists, um, students, professors, and professionals um, who are even vaguely affiliated with Palestine activism. It largely, largely targets brown and black students, Muslim students, um, and it um, claims to like heavily research you. Um, and what I think it's interesting about Canary Mission is I had friends who were on Canary Mission prior to... Who had been blacklisted yes, by Canary Mission. Um, who had just been long-term affiliated with um, organizations like PSC. Um, and, you know, their Canary Mission profiles include screenshots of op-eds they'd written in support of Palestine, photos of them at... Um, protests or events at an event called Kafia Thursday, which we have at Harvard every Thursday. Students wear kafias, um, traditional Palestinian scarf. Um, so there are these like collected um, data sets on students. There are also students on Canary Mission who were um, placed in Canary Mission following the Crimson Editorial Board's support for the Boycott Divest Sanctions Movement. Which was two years ago, I believe. Yeah, it was um, 2022. But they weren't added to Canary, I believe, until 2023, which is interesting. Um, there are also just random Muslim Palestinian students who were added to Canary Mission for their personal tweets or um, personal activism, um, even using the word Nakba, which is um, Arabic for catastrophe, uh, which refers to um, the mass ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in 1948. Um, it could be enough for someone to be placed on Canary Mission. But myself, along with I think almost 50 Harvard students, were added to Canary Mission um, within a month of the PSC statement. Um, and some students on there were added simply for listing that they were part of, for example, the Harvard Islamic Society or the Society of Arab Students on their LinkedIn's. Um, so random freshmen, sophomore students who have no leadership roles in these organizations um, and were simply placed on there because of an affinity group affiliation, which is really interesting because I think it speaks to a larger pattern of um, racist Islamophobic um, patterns of Canary Mission. I think Canary Mission is also very good at weaponizing whatever they can to elicit as much hate of you as possible. Um, for example, for several students, um, there's been photos of them who are in drag posted um, transgender students receiving transphobic um, hate um, on their Canary Mission tweets. Um, for me myself, my Canary Mission tweet appears to have a darkened photo of me um, to uh, increase the likelihood of someone uh, you know, perceiving me in a racialized way. Um, and I think that's just very important to speak to the larger um, way Canary Mission operates. 
Um, and Canary Mission is also incredibly good at um, utilizing SEOs, which is how internet searches um, appear. So it's often your first or second search result. SEO is search engine optimization, <laughs> and it determines when you Google something, what comes up first. So this is very important. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for a lot of people, this becomes their first search result. Um, for some of my friends who have more long-standing Canary Mission profiles, it's even become like a knowledge bar um, next to their name on Google. And um, Canary really, I think, just seeks to um, delegitimize anyone affiliated with organizing for Palestine um, and is a very insidious organization. For more background on Canary Mission, I turned to James Bamford, a National Magazine award-winning investigative reporter and the author of Spy Fail, a book about foreign powers that are spying against the U.S. He wrote an article in The Nation last week entitled, Who is Funding Canary Mission? Inside the Doxing Operation Targeting Anti-Zionist Students and Professors. I asked Bamford to explain what Canary Mission is and who's behind it. Canary Mission is a very secretive organization. Um, it's run out of Israel, uh, a number of organizations, the Forward magazine, Jewish magazine, the Forward uh, looked into it and uh, Haratz, the uh, Israeli newspaper, looked into it and they traced it back to a, uh, uh, a rabbi in, um, in Israel, um, hidden behind a front company. Uh, so it's very secretive. Um, a lot of the money comes from the U.S. It comes from a variety of uh, wealthy Jewish individuals and Jewish corporations. Um, such as the uh, Jewish uh, Community Federation of San Francisco, for example, uh, submitted uh, uh, $100,000 to the organization's front company, and that came from uh, the Dillard family, which was a very wealthy family in, in California. It was only by a mistake that the uh, mistake on the tax form that the actual identity of the donor came out. So again, it's secretly funded, it's hidden behind a front organization, and it's run by people who uh, don't want to be identified in Israel. And it's used uh, uh, by the Israeli government to deny entry to U.S. Uh, uh, Americans, uh, to Americans, and also uh, people who are uh, Jewish or um, Palestinian trying to go home to visit family. So if, if the Israeli government sees that they're on uh, Canary Mission, they'll turn them back or they'll put them in confinement for a while until they're deported. So it's a very uh, useful tool for the U.S., uh, rather for the Israeli government. What would What is the purpose of doxing, particularly student activists? Well, the purpose is to intimidate them, to force them not to do what they're doing, which is protesting against Israeli policy or protesting in favor of, of uh, Palestinian uh, human rights. So the whole idea is to frighten them one way or another, um, to put their names on a blacklist, uh, which would uh, uh, make other people think that there's something wrong with them or that they're prejudiced and that uh, when they try to go to a job, get a job interview, they'll worry that the interviewee will turn them down because they're on the list. Um, and it even uh, devolves into physical inter uh, intimidation. Uh, George Washington University, for example, uh, some grown men in, in uh, canary outfits uh, showed up and, and did a sort of a frightening dance to scare people who were um, about to vote for um, um, uh, a policy that was going to be against the uh, Israeli government. So they um, um, intimidate uh, physically uh, and uh, intimidate on the um, blacklist and so forth. So it's a it's a very aggressive organization. You know, this is not a, uh, uh, this is a very well-organized, well-financed uh, um, operation run by a foreign country to intimidate Americans. And it's an operation that should be uh, um, investigated by the FBI. I mean, if you had a, uh, an organization in Russia 
that was putting Americans on a blacklist and Americans were sending money to Russia to support this uh, this blacklisting and, and uh, harassment uh, of Americans. I mean, the FBI would be on them in a nanosecond, uh, but this has been going on for years and years and years, and there's never been any uh, any U.S. government action taken against it. That was journalist James Bamford. He wrote an article for The Nation last week entitled, Who is Funding Canary Mission? Returning to my conversation with Eva Frazier, the Vermonter who is a sophomore at Harvard, I asked her about the statement made by Harvard's Undergraduate Palestine Solidarity Committee, or PSC, following Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th, in which over 1,200 Israelis died. The PSC declared that it held Israel, quote, entirely responsible for all unfolding violence, close quote. Um, this statement received tremendous pushback immediately, ranging from students to former President, Harvard President Larry Summers, who called it uh, morally unconscionable. And a number of the original signing groups, uh, you mentioned there were 33, I think, withdrew support. So talk about the statement. Looking back, would you have stated it any differently? Or do you reflect on what that, the statement and what followed from it? Yeah, I think also important is I'm here, you know, as a Vermont student um, and not speaking on behalf of PSU or any of the organizations affiliated with it. Um, but I think as an individual, um, my understanding of the statement and as was published by the Palestine Solidarity Committee um, in a second follow-up statement was that the intention and purpose of the statement was to contextualize um, the root cause of the violence um, that ensued on October 7th, and that the first statement um, did um, lament and continues, the organization continues to lament and mourn all civilian lives lost um, and, you know, um, does not support uh, violence against um, civilians. Um, but I think one thing that really still stands out to me from the, both the first and second statement um, was the warnings of large-scale colonial, um, I think, quote, colonial retribution um, and attacks on Palestinians um, following the attacks on October 7th. And I think, you know, now almost three months later, with almost 30,000 dead Palestinians in Gaza, I think that still rings incredibly true to me. Um, I think it is incredibly unfortunate that the statement was willfully um, twisted to imply that students supported um, and um, glorified this violence. Um, but I think I um, also truly do believe that the statement was used as a distraction from the violence that has ensued in Gaza um, and has really prohibited um, and prohibited for a long time the campus community and larger community from really um, focusing on ongoing genocide. Um, yeah, I think those are where my thoughts are as an individual. What drew you to become involved in Palestinian solidarity work? Yeah, so I've, I think, been involved in various different organizing spaces in high school, um, at Harvard. Um, I think I, I've been very involved in Amnesty International, and um, through that experience, I think, learned a lot about you know, Amnesty's apartheid report, um, which I think was how I really formally introduced to... Um, Say what that is. Yeah, so um, I feel like it was in 2021 um, or 2022. I'm pretty sure 2021, Amnesty International put out a report um, labeling um, the current system in Israel-Palestine as an apartheid system um, and um, detailing how Palestinians are subjected to different checkpoints um, different road systems, buildings, permits, um, routine military searches, um, you know, permits to cross between Gaza and the West Bank. Gaza's been under a complete blockade um, for almost 20 years. Um, and really, Amnesty, I think, got a lot of pushback for that. And again, not speaking here as a official representative of Amnesty, um, but, you know, just from what I've seen, um, the apartheid report was really, I think, important for shifting U.S. dialogue around um, the Israeli apartheid regime um, and 
has paved the way for a lot of um, dialogue around what is occurring currently in historic Palestine. Eva, I wonder if you could just um, introduce yourself a little bit and talk about where you grew up and attended school and your interests. Yeah, um, so I was born in California, but moved to Vermont when I was little and grew up in Hinesburg, went to Hinesburg Community School, um, and then went to Champlain Valley Union High School um, and graduated in 2022. And then I went to Harvard and I'm a sophomore at Harvard studying social studies and, you know, outside of uh, the work I do with PSC, um, I'm involved with, with Amnesty um, and both nationally and at Harvard's campus. And then um, I um, am involved with Harvard Club Swim. I grew up swimming um, and um, enjoy being in Boston. I think it's a great city. Um, spend a lot of time out and about with my friends. Talk a little bit about when you first became active on social justice issues. I think I've always cared about issues in my community and um, at large. I do remember in fourth grade, I was really concerned about um, Hannaford's coming into Heinsberg and buying out the local grocery store. I think that's the first time I remember um, using my voice to um, talk about something that mattered to me. Um, and then in high school, I was involved at CBU and um, with Amnesty around my, um, you know, involvement um, in issues at the local high school, um, in the state, nationally. I also did a lot with New England Swimming, which is the swimming go governing body in New England around learn to swim access, diversity in swimming, because it's a huge issue. I think a lot of people don't know about um, large racial inequities and who learns to swim and who drowns. Um, and very cyclical pattern, um, and then just say just <laughs> say something about that. That's something people really probably don't know. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of Americans don't know that um, segregation, Jim Crow policies, um, and pre civil rights movement really heavily targeted swimming pools. Um, public pools were largely white only, and there was a lot of restriction um, and a lot of. Uh, very intense um, movements to um, keep swimming pools segregated. Um, when the civil rights movement happened, a lot of swimming pools basically moved into private communities, um, offered, uh, operated in de facto segregation of like who could pay to be part of you know, a golf club or a health club. And in the state of Vermont, there's not that many pools to begin with. Um, almost all of them are in private um, fitness clubs. And obviously we don't have a need for a ton of pools year round because it's obviously cold. Um, but what that's led to, I think, and you've seen, everyone's seen in the news, um, there is often drownings in Lake Champlain primarily impacting um, new American communities. Um, Vermont's always, already such a white state. I think um, you see a even exacerbated um, level of racial divide in the sport of swimming, which was really um, important to me in high school to um, try to reconcile, especially given just the like limited structural um, opportunity to pools in New England. Um, so yeah, that was something I was really passionate about high school and continue to be passionate about. Teaching uh, students in low-income communities swimming, basic swimming. Yeah, and also working with New England Swimming to like structurally improve the ways in which students progress through um, elite swimming. Was the issue of Israel and Palestine new to you upon getting to college? Um, I would say relatively. Again, the apartheid report was published while I was in high school um, and, you know, had conversations about that um, in MSD. I also remember in my junior spring, there was the, um, um, everything that was happening in Shakia Jahara in East Jerusalem, where um, Palestinian families were being forced out of their homes. And I think that was also big moment for me of realization um, and connecting the dots around what was occurring um, and that this was an issue that really mattered to me. Recently, as everybody knows, Vermont um, was pulled into the center of this whole issue about the attacks on Palestinians when three young men of Palestinian descent 
who were here visiting their grandmother, uh, one of their grandmothers at Thanksgiving, were shot on the streets of Burlington. How did that affect you, knowing that, you know, your hometown was now international news? Yeah, I think, so I actually was home um, when the shooting happened, um, and I um, have friends at school who were friends with the three men who were shot in Vermont, um, and I had, it was a very surreal experience of leaving Vermont, taking the bus back to Boston um, as kind of the world was um, processing this. I think one thing that really made me very upset um, following the shooting was a lot of denial I felt like I saw from Vermont community members around how the shooting could have possibly occurred in Vermont. And I think, absolutely, I think shock and grief um, and anger that this occurred is incredibly valid. But I think sometimes in Vermont, we see, I think, sometimes an exceptionalization that issues like around racism, Islamophobia, et cetera, do not occur um, in the state. And I think, unfortunately, that is not true. And I think that sh the shooting has proved that. I think three hours before the shooting, I was in Burlington wearing a keffiyeh and I remember very clearly um, receiving you know some very dirty stares um, from someone in outdoor gear exchange who somewhat followed me around the store and I think you know that pre-leading the shooting with such a close proximity um, to me is just one small incident of the anti-Palestinian racism that impacts a lot of um, America and what is a result of massive dehumanization of Palestinians. I think the shooting and Vermont's response um, is incredibly connected to what's going on in Gaza. Um, and as um, the victims of the shooting themselves have talked about, you know, part of this larger system, um, an apartheid system that dehumanizes and devalues Palestinian life. I was incredibly disappointed to see the Burlington City Council fail to pass a ceasefire resolution just a few weeks after the shooting, after many Vermont officials expressed deep um, sympathy and grief around the shooting, but I think failed to connect that um, valuing Palestinian lives means valuing an end to the ongoing genocide um, and how that has deep connections to what happens here in our home. Why do you wear a keffiyeh? What does it mean to you? I think to me it means solidarity with Palestinians, um, solidarity with movements for justice and freedom for all people um, and for Palestinians. What is, how is what's going on in Israel and Gaza, and now, as you mentioned, the death toll in Gaza is pushing 30,000. I mean, every time I cite a death toll, I'm off by thousands, mm -hmm. changes so rapidly. How has that affected you as a young person looking at the world? I think it's, incredibly surreal also with just the amount of press coverage that um, students like myself and Harvard in general have received because I think something keeps thinking about is that we aren't the story here like I think the story truly is what is occurring in Gaza that we are witnessing a genocide and the U.S. in general has I think an opportunity to stop what is occurring I'm sure you saw yeah I think it was yesterday or two days ago that President Biden has pushed through an arms shipment to Israel against congressional approval. Um, I think it's just, it is unconscionable that our elected leaders are failing to listen to that the majority of their constituents across political party um, want a longstanding ceasefire. I also think as a young person, it's just so surreal to have grown up um, in school learning about what being a bystander means and what being an upstander means, and I took a class in high school on genocide, um, and learning about like what makes genocide and the signs of genocide. And obviously, I'm just a college student. Without, um, don't listen to me. I think you know there's a lot of genocide scholars out there who are calling what is occurring clearly a genocide, and you clearly see an intent um, to wipe out an entire population from many um, senior Israeli officials. And I'm just shocked to not see more action in the U.S. Um, from a country that financially um, supports and funds um, Israeli apartheid and this genocide that is ongoing. I think it's also reinforced to me the importance as a Harvard student, um, as a U.S. taxpayer, of advocating 
um, for Palestinian justice because my taxpayer dollars are funding this um, and are funding um, the deaths of over 10,000 children. It's just, it's, it's an unfathomable loss to the world. There has been um, talk of a Palestine exception when it comes to free speech. Explain what that means, and also if you feel that you have been part of this exception on your campus. Yeah, I mean, I the Palestine exception to free speech is used to refer to this kind of double standard that we see um, from uh, institutions that support um, ideological diversity and um, academic discussion, um, shutting down um, and censoring speech on Palestine, groups like SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, as we've seen at several universities, including Columbia, um, over the past few months, and censoring high-profile um, Palestinian speakers. Um, like at UVM, Mohammed al-Kurd was um, you know, barred from coming due to safety concerns. Um, and I think the Palestine exception to free speech has always rung true at Harvard. Um, you know, there are students, like I've mentioned, who are already on Canary Mission um, and a climate on Harvard's campus that has um, definitely um, limited discourse um, and support for Palestine. Um, I think, you know, this has just been shown in um, the ways in which um, students have been have been censored in the past. I think one thing that was not fully talked about just given the severity of like doxing everything was that um, following the statement PSC's Instagram account was um, taken down for a little bit and then was um, put back up. So, you know, we see this from social media platforms, from universities, um, and Mohammed al-Kurd, the Palestinian um, poet and journalist, was also recently uh, suspended on um, X, I believe. And, you know, I think it is a larger structural issue that prohibits discussion around Palestine and has led to, you know, that's what empowers things like this doxing campaign. Hmm. Congress has now taken an issue, uh, supposedly, in campus protests, and Republicans have convened hearings, supposedly focusing on campus protests and anti-Semitism. As a student, what's your view of this about what do you think is underlying this newfound interest of Congress, and what do you think is the state of issues like free speech and anti-Semitism on your campus? Yeah, I mean... I definitely want to preface this that I'm not a Jewish student, so I cannot speak fully to the experience of anti-Semitism on Harvard's campus. Um, what I can say is, as a student who's felt incredibly unsafe on Harvard's campus, it breaks my heart that any students would feel unsafe um, at school. Um, it's also why I think it's incredibly important to advocate for justice in Palestine, because I think you know, the fact that the Gazan schools had to be shut for the year because so many pupils had died is just, it's horrific. Um, I think in regards to Congress, I think this is honestly, um, you know, a chance to talk about things that aren't this genocide. And I think that must always be considered. Um, that it's a distraction. Yeah. As what, in regards to anti-Semitism on Harvard's campus, I will just point everyone towards, um, there are groups on Harvard's campus like Jews for Palestine, which is a new student group. Um, who have been organizing and actually went down to D.C. on the day of the congressional hearing. Um, there was also a recent Crimson um, collection of op-eds, um, including voices from Jews for Palestine, um, rebuking the claim that all Jews are Zionists on Harvard's campus. Um, also, the, the former director of Harvard Hillel recently put out a piece on the need to stop weaponizing anti-Semitism for the safety of all students. Um, and I hope that Congress truly does prioritize the safety of students um, and through listening to, to all students on Harvard's campus. When you say you feel unsafe on campus, what do you mean? I think just to have the presence of the doxing truck, for example, um, news crew after news crew um, hunting down stories um, and, you know, a aura that has made, I think, a lot of students, especially marginalized students, feel unsafe on Harvard's campus. Do you, what do you think has been the overall 
impact on um, your peers, uh, your classmates on college campuses generally. Um, it's, it's important to recognize Harvard is one relatively mm -hmm. small campus yeah, in a nation of 2,000 colleges. Clearly, there is an effort here to use this as a gateway mm -hmm. to speak to college students yeah. nationally. What do you think the effect has been on all this hyper-focus on what you're doing, for example? Yeah. I think... I think there's several parts. I think one is making colleges the story when I truly think it should it be. Um, I think two, um, you know, it's led to large crackdowns on free speech um, as we've seen um, at Columbia, at Brandeis, um, where their SJPs have been suspended. Um, and I think it has made students who um, want to advocate for justice in Palestine um, afraid of um, facing university pushback, and this is transcending Harvard, just through speaking to national um, trends. I think that is not productive to um, any type of university um, life at campus um, culture. Um, Where do you go for support, and, and what expressions of support have you had? I think like my largest support net has been my friends, most of whom were on the doxing track um, on Canary Mission, and I think they understand intimately the experience um, that we've all gone through um, and also understand, again, the importance of continuing to use our voices and our positions of students at a university that um, is invested um, in Israeli apartheid and in occupied Palestine. Um, and I think we found a lot of solidarity. I think I've also been really grateful to find solidarity and support from students in Jews for Palestine. I think um, students there have really recognize that all of our safety is intertwined on this campus and that attacks against pro-Palestine students harm everyone. Um, and I think it's been wonderful to work with them to ensure a safer campus for everyone. When you heard that the truck came to your house, what did that uh, feel like to you? I So I just gotten off of this French test and I um, was pretty distracted because I figured the truck was coming, did not do very well, I don't think. Um, but I was just, I think, incredibly disappointed. Um, it's probably the only word, just that it had gotten to this level of animosity and violence towards students and the potential for what could happen to our families it definitely was there. Um, so I was very concerned about that. Um, it was also just all of the doxing is just a administrative headache to deal with and I think that is something that isn't always spoken about is the way it reduces your energy and your capacity to do other things including your organizing um, so trying to balance that was incredibly hard is there anything you do to combat the doxing I mean I think there's been resources provided by the school um, they created a doxing task force um, and have tried to protect my like, personal information and um, internet results as much as I can. Um, but I think right now, again, the gravity of what's occurring in Gaza has really superseded that and should supersede that um, in where I spend my energy and time. What do you hope to do after college? I hope to attend law school. Um, I would like to continue to advocate for change. And I think being a lawyer, um, potential human rights lawyer seems like a good way to do that um, but still up in the air are you concerned about the effect that the doxing will have on your future um i think in the end i think i um believe that a lot of people in the world are realizing um that what is occurring in Palestine is a genocide. And I think that um, I have hope that when I apply for things in the future, um, people will view my activism favorably. Um, but again, I think that's you know not, not why I or anyone else does it. Um, and I think I have hope that everything that's meant to work out works out. Has there been any 
particular outreach that you've heard, maybe from people you went to high school with or in your community, that's been especially meaningful to you in this time? Yeah, I think I had a lot of people reach out to me um, from high school who um, have become increasingly vocal about Palestine, um, expressing their support, um, that they were proud. And I think that means a lot. Um, Also, I think, again, what means more is that there are more people in Vermont who are continuing to speak out um, for what um, is occurring in Gaza and what occurred in Burlington, um, the shooting. Um, And I hope is that all Vermonters will recognize that I think the shared values of the state that are largely helping others, um, helping your neighbor, really apply in this situation and in all situations of injustice, um, how important it is to use your voice. A day after I recorded this conversation with Eva Frazier, the president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, resigned just six months after being appointed. Her resignation followed a month-long backlash after she testified in Congress about anti-Semitism on campus and allegations advanced by right-wing activists that some of her scholarly work had been plagiarized, which Harvard's governing body refuted. Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik celebrated Gay's resignation, calling the former Harvard president, quote, morally bankrupt and vowing, this is just the beginning. Gay's defenders included Boston University professor Ibram X. Kendi, who said Gay was a target of racist mobs and asserted that the attacks on her were part of a larger campaign against free speech and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Harvard professor Albert Guzzetti said, quote, This recalls the worst days of McCarthyism. I reached back out to Eva to ask her her thoughts on the resignation of Harvard's president. I definitely can't opine on the validity of the plagiarism claims, just because I'm not an expert. But I do feel that they have been weaponized by far-right activists and leaders. Um, So they've stated themselves um, to suppress free speech, um, hurt higher ed, and I think really wage um, a war against DEI affirmative action. Um, And we've seen Um, Some of the loudest supporters for Claudine Gay's resignation include um, their um, goals of dismantling programs like DEI and affirmative action in their um, criticisms of Claudine, which I think um, definitely cannot be left out. Um, So I think that's where immediately my mind goes to. What do you think the implications down the road are for higher education, for your education, you know, when we've seen two women presidents, and it has to be said that these are all women who have been in the crosshairs, be ousted in, you know, in just a month. Yeah, I think um, it's really concerning um, for external influence and um, the way in which the university has caved um, to this external pressure. Um, it's ve- I'm very fearful for freedom of expression, especially freedom of expression, um, as it regards to Palestine, I think um, that's it's very concerning in general. Um, so I think this is really concerning for uh, higher education across the board. I think as concerned as I am about higher education, it is um, it is hard to see every news source covering this um, and not feel that it is still um, a distraction from the Um, tens of thousands of civilian lives that have been lost um, in Gaza um, and all um, conflicts claiming civilian lives across the world right now. Well, Eva Frazier, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for having me. That was Eva Frazier, a 2022 graduate of Champlain Valley Union High School, who's now a sophomore at Harvard. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. 